1: This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Coming up later in this program, we'll have an exclusive CBS News interview with the President. But we start off with Dr. Ben Carson, a member of the President's Cabinet. He is, of course, the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development and also a pioneer in the field of neurosurgery, giving him medical expertise at an interesting time in America's history when housing and medical concerns are all coming together. Dr. Carson... Pleasure. How are you? I'm doing very
2: well. Very nice to be with you.
1: Before we get into some of the other topics in the news, one of the areas of biggest concern, of course, right now with housing and what's going on with the virus is that in a matter of days... Federal eviction protections will expire, possibly putting millions of families out on the street. There are, of course, some local protections that remain in place in some parts of the country, but that still leaves millions of Americans without a safety net. Are those protections from eviction on the federal level going to be extended?
2: Uh, that that will be up to Congress. They, um, they're the only ones who have the power to do that. But it doesn't mean that we're not paying very close attention to it. Uh, that's why last week we released our... Uh, Anti-Eviction Toolbox, which has a lot of information in it for renters in terms of what's available to them, as well as to landlords and uh, PHAs in terms of what they should do. Uh, also, we have uh, over 1,700 housing counselors, and we tell people how to get in contact with them. And we encourage landlords to work with their tenants early on. Don't wait to the last minute. And also we have a rent recertification program, so if you're a renter uh, on a government program and you don't have a job or you have greatly decreased hours and your salary has gone down significantly, your income can be recertified, and of course your rent is based upon your income.
1: This is a crisis for landlords as well as tenants because they have mortgages to pay. If they're not paying their mortgages, property taxes don't get paid, and those, of course, support county hospitals, police, fire, and so on. One of the things we're hearing on the landlord side is that, look, I'm a small landlord. The large ones get PPP, but when I went in, they said, I'm not eligible. So what do we say to them?
2: That's why uh, the government's been asking the lending organizations, the servicers, uh, to reconsider uh, extending and broadening the extent of the forbearance that's, that's provided. But obviously, the real answer here is opening up the economy again and getting people back to work.
1: Well, we want to reopen, of course, but look at what happened recently with some of the states that did try to reopen. Arizona, Texas, Florida. We look even overseas at Israel, which had numbers that were greatly reduced and seemed to almost have the virus defeated. They reopened their schools in mid-May and one month later their virus numbers just exploded. So how do we reopen safely?
2: We need to swallow our pride and look at the places that have been able to reopen successfully. What are they doing? One of the things you'll notice when you see uh, news about what's going on in Europe is almost everybody has a mask on. Uh, And what I think we need to do is teach our young people who feel like they're invincible and invulnerable and For the most part, they are to this virus, but we need to teach them to assume that they are asymptomatic carriers, particularly if they're around an elderly person or a vulnerable person. That's how we can really depress the curve very, very quickly.
1: You are, of course, a member of the Coronavirus Task Force. We don't see as much of the task force in public these days. Is it with this recent surge still meeting daily, and what are its major concerns?
2: Uh, not meeting daily anymore, but uh, a few times a week, and uh, of of course trying to analyze the data uh, on a very regular basis, recognizing that we really have to do better messaging to get people to do what they know they should be doing in terms of personal hygiene, uh, in terms of wearing masks in terms of socially distancing. If we would do that seriously, like we did a few months ago, uh, we would be very successful in depressing. and we gotta get those young people who think that they're invincible to, to recognize that if they really wanna open things up and have fun again, just you know, take this seriously for a couple of months so that we can really get this thing depressed again. And I always say to young people just assume that you're an asymptomatic carrier when you're around elderly people or vulnerable people. Just assume that and act accordingly. That will have a tremendous impact.
1: Well, that's the second time you've brought up the importance of masks. And of course, it's underlined by the fact that you're a doctor. Do you think this administration has had trouble, especially with the president messaging or sending mixed messages about masks and freedoms, selling that message, and then also, of course, the disputes between members of the administration and Dr. Fauci?
2: There's no question that, you know, people have had different positions. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci, you know, said at one point, no, you don't need them, and then, yes, you need them. But you've got to realize that he's, he's basing this on the current information. And as as new information is brought in, as new studies are looked at, as new evidence is examined, you know, it changes. So it's, it's not so much that, you know, Fauci or anybody else is, is being deceptive. It's just that, you know, they, they don't always have all the information at hand at the
1: time. Final question, since we're about to run out of time, let me ask you about a question coming up in politics that directly affects your office, and I haven't heard anybody ask you about it. The Biden campaign has been pushing the idea of making the federal housing voucher program, known as Section 8, universal. In other words, pushing Congress, and yes, it would have to be Congress, to make Section 8 available to every low-income family who qualifies. That means, of course, a lot more money. Right now, Section 8, as you know better than anybody, is limited by a cap of money Congress provides for it. Fully funding it would make 11 million people more eligible. What do you think of that idea?
2: Well, first of all, you've got to consider the fact that a lot of people who have Section 8 vouchers still can't find a place to live. You know, what we really need to concentrate on is making more affordable housing available. And in order to do that, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what are the barriers that are preventing us from utilizing some of the knowledge, some of the technology that has been developed to create affordable houses. If we would concentrate on that, I think the other problem takes care of
1: itself. Could HUD do a demonstration project or something as to how to develop more affordable housing?
2: Oh, they have them, believe me. We have amazing technology and things that can be done. The problem is you've got all these jurisdictions that say, no, you can't build that here. No, you can't be in our area. That's the problem. And uh, and, that, and that's why we concentrate so much on getting rid of those unnecessary regulations. A lot of the regulations have been on the books for 20, 30, 50 years. They have nothing to do with what's going on now. And yet they preclude us from being able to build affordable housing, and it's going to be—it's going to require cooperation with the local, state, and federal government in order to get this done.
1: Are we talking mostly about zoning there?
2: Zoning is is, is one issue, but you have noise restrictions, height restrictions, density restrictions, historic preservation. You've got rules like anybody who lives uh, in a house has to be related to the owner. You know why do people have that? rule in there because they were afraid of brothels well nobody's afraid of brothels anymore you know all of these kinds of things really just need to be cleared off the books with an eye toward how do we create responsible housing and you know there's some people who are afraid that you know people from the inner city are going to move into the suburbs or whatever you know what a bunch of garbage what we need to be doing and it's getting people to recognize that the government doesn't come in anymore like it used to and build these gigantic multifamily dwellings with little forethought or afterthought or any kind of thought and then let it deteriorate and become a nidus for crime and prostitution and everything else. That's that's a past thing. Now we're talking about public-private partnerships, mixed income, mixed use, We're not talking about building multifamily dwellings in a neighborhood of single-family homes. But sometimes people get frightened and think that that's what's going on. That's not what's going on at all.
1: I'd love to, when you have more time in the future, talk more about getting more affordable housing. It's one of the top things for the future of this country. It's one of the things that everybody agrees on. Dr. Ben Carson is of course the secretary for housing and urban development dr carson thank you so much for your time today
2: thank you it's been great being with you
1: this is america changed forever from the cbs audio network welcome back to america changed forever from the cbs audio network Emily Benfer is conducting nationwide research on eviction during the COVID-19 pandemic. She's also co-creator of the COVID-19 Housing Policy Scorecard with the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. She is also a visiting professor at Wake Forest University School of Law where she is working on many things where health and housing come together emily good to talk to you how are you
3: hi thank you so much for having me
1: this is a difficult time for so many people eviction moratoriums are running out in many places where do homeowners who can't make their mortgage payment and renters who can't pay the landlord stand right now
3: honestly in a very perilous situation at a time when shelter is paramount to stabilizing the united states and controlling the pandemic our country is on the brink of a housing crisis of unprecedented magnitude that will affect countless Americans. I think we are careening toward this cliff of widespread eviction, and with it, the cascade of poor health outcomes that it causes. And we have no guardrail in place to protect us or a safety net to catch all of the people who are at risk right now.
1: This is such a patchwork, what we have right now, depending on whether your mortgage is federally backed, on what state eviction programs for renters do, when those and if some states even have them i mean as a practical matter i have seen some recordings of evictions that are are being done in court on zoom where it appears that neither tenant nor landlords have any idea what programs may be available to them
3: that's right. The The patchwork across the country is really hard to navigate. Many states have tried to approach this by placing partial bans on evictions, but they vary in the strength of protection, the phase of eviction that's forestalled, the type of population that's protected from eviction. And so it's hard for people to navigate that system, let alone to understand what the federal moratorium entailed and which properties it applies to. In, in response to the increasing risk of eviction, these federal and statewide moratoriums were issued and they, they only provided temporary interventions, so temporary unemployment insurance and limited funding for rental assistance. And that has prevented widespread homelessness for the immediate time. But as soon as these moratoriums and insurance expire, and they will at the end of July, states do not have strategies in place to prevent widespread eviction. And we think that renters will need approximately $14 billion per month to stay housed once this expires. And without the financial assistance and the nationwide moratorium, court officials, researchers, housing groups unanimously expect evictions to reach unprecedented rates.
1: I mean, at some point, these moratoriums end, as you're pointing out, and among many things, landlords may ask for a lump sum in back rent, Uh, some of them just to prevent themselves from losing the property to the bank because they may not have been able to make mortgage payments.
3: Correct. One of the issues here is that this is not just about the tenants who are facing eviction. The housing market itself is... Really foundational to our country's stability, and when the rent goes unpaid, they're not the tenants are not the only ones bearing the brunt of the crisis. States, cities, school districts, landlords will all suffer along with the renters. When those payments stop, property taxes stop, mortgage payments stop, building maintenance, employee salaries all stop. And these payments are the declining rent payments are the most likely to affect small landlords who, like the renters, lack a financial cushion to ride out the pandemic. And so the United States is really in a position to respond to the entire housing market in order to stabilize our our economy and our communities. And this requires both rental assistance and mortgage assistance to ensure that we can weather this storm.
1: Yeah. Some of the landlords have been saying, we're talking here about small landlords some of the small landlords are saying, look, I asked whether I could get a small business relief program. And they said, well, do you have a corporation? I said, well, no, I'm just a guy who owns a building and I've got these tenants. And they said, well, no, you don't even qualify for any help at all. And when they're not paying property taxes, yeah, that affects county hospitals, fire, police, so so many people. So this is a spiral that involves renters, that involves landlords, such a large number of people.
3: Absolutely. Eviction is not just about relocating to alternative housing. It affects the entire community because we rely on the housing market. And it's also a traumatic event. It has negative consequences at both the individual and family level, and that spirals into the communities and the state across the United States. It can cause a family to experience decline in mental and physical well being, ruined credit scores, homelessness, job loss, just to name a few of its effects. And all of these have societal costs. So we are just shifting. the the damage onto other systems and onto our communities.
1: The act of eviction itself, even those caused by job loss that are no fault of the worker, and that's a huge number right now, destroys credit scores, can make it impossible to rent again. It harms health and school for any kid happened. So what can be done to protect everybody in this, or at least get them through this, and then past the period where everybody is going to be trying to make up payments afterwards?
3: That's such a good point that, this, this is really something that, the, that we've put on top of renters for no fault of their own, that no one can actually shoulder the burden of the economic depression. And that the result of this is devastating, that eviction, it always leads to a downward move. It leads to unemployment, residential instability, homelessness, academic decline, and negative health consequences for adults and children. And all of those have significant high cost expenditures for healthcare and society. And they also have long-term outcomes, especially for children. As As an adverse childhood experience, eviction leads to poor health in adulthood. It's shorter life expectancy and a host of problems that we are really guaranteeing a downward trajectory for children who face eviction and who across the country are about to watch as their beds and their toys and their home is piled up on the curb or locked up in storage. So on top of that emotional trauma, it leaves this physical wreckage in the aftermath. And so how do we respond to this? We must have robust government intervention, without which we can expect a cascade of evictions across the country. Uh, It's expected that 16 million households are at risk of eviction right now, and that number will rise to upwards of 24 million by September if we continue on this current course of minimal interventions. So what do interventions look like? Immediate nationwide moratorium to stop the harm before it begins, rent relief and mortgage assistance to stabilize the housing market, And then to protect the people who are already in the eviction system, it's important to infuse that system with equity and the civil right to counsel and other measures that will ensure that we can keep people housed as long as possible during this pandemic.
1: We've been going on the wrong direction in housing for some time, even before the virus. We've lost 4 million affordable housing units just in the last decade. So for a lot of people, it's not a matter of, well, I'm going to get kicked out of this place, but maybe I can find a cheaper place somewhere else that somewhere else just doesn't exist because of the rate that we are losing housing. What's going on and what do we do about it?
3: Nearly three decades of rising rent and wage stagnation coupled with centuries of systematic discrimination within our housing market and our policies has actually given rise to this eviction. <clears throat> to put this in perspective for today, according to the eviction lab at Princeton University, seven evictions were filed every minute in 2016. That was when the nationwide unemployment rate was 4.7%. Today, we're at nearly three times that level. Let's look at the foreclosure crisis. 10 million people were displaced from homes over the course of years following the foreclosure crisis. Today's crisis is unparalleled. At this moment, we're looking at upwards of 24 million people careening toward that cliff of eviction by September.
1: You mentioned discrimination in housing. Let's briefly ask you about this. HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, published a plan that is about to go in effect that people say would make it harder to prove housing discrimination. What effect, and what's interesting about this is it's opposed by the Bank of America, by Quicken, and the National Association of Realtors. Uh, How much of an effect do you think that this could have on renters?
3: HUD has a legislatively prescribed duty to provide safe and decent housing for Americans. And part of that means redressing the United States' sordid history of repeatedly infringing on the rights of low-income communities and especially people of color and that is perpetuated by the current administration's efforts to dismantle fair housing, and this is no exception. Uh, This is an abandonment of civil right protections, and the effects will be increased discriminatory housing practices, increased racially discriminatory um, outcomes, and, and it's critical that we move in the opposite direction and try to redress that in order to provide for equal access to housing and opportunity in our communities.
1: Final question where we are right now with with all of what we've talked about. Is there something that HUD should be doing that it's not doing?
3: HUD has an unprecedented opportunity to actually uh, infuse the housing market with stability, with affordable housing, um, with access and opportunity, communities of opportunity throughout our country. There have been numerous proposals that HUD has um, ignored or discarded over time and has worked hard to dismantle some of the the advances that we made over the last decade. Uh, so there are plenty of opportunities. I think ultimately HUD, uh, Congress, our entire nation, we have to define our post-pandemic reality. We were given unprecedented opportunity uh, by, with the pandemic, which elevated, highlighted, magnified all of the underlying root causes of housing instability in our country and the unaffordability of housing. We can now address those root causes. So the question is, will we callously stand by as families are turned out on the streets solely because the economic depression proved too heavy to shoulder? Or will we finally stop ignoring this issue and postponing interventions by providing safety and security of a home for all Americans? I think if, if, if we answer the call, if, if humanity reigns, we won't hesitate to choose the latter. And it's my hope that that's exactly what HUD and Congress will do.
1: Emily Benfer is co-creator of the COVID-19 Housing Policy Scorecard with the Eviction Lab at Princeton University, visiting professor of law at Wake Forest University School of Law. Emily, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm Gil Gross. This week, CBS News had an exclusive interview with President Trump. Here is CBS News Senior Investigative Correspondent Katherine Herridge.
4: President Trump, thank you for speaking with CBS News. Over the weekend, you went to Walter Reed and you wore a face mask in public for the right. first time. What message were you sending?
5: Well, I think when you're in a hospital setting and uh, in the case of uh, Walter Reed, I went to see the troops that have been very badly injured in some cases. One had just come out of an operation. And I think I really have that obligation to do that. Mm -hmm. I was still, you know, quite far away, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to be far away. I want to hug them because they're they're really great mm-hmm. heroes, amazing heroes. So, and I, I did put on a mm-hmm. face mask. I have no, you know, I've had them on before too. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with but that. In pri-
4: but in private, not public. Well, you have to understand yeah. I'm
5: probably the most tested person mm-hmm. in the world and I can guarantee the people that come see me are all tested. No matter who they are, they're all tested. I, I, so. I,
4: I understand that. The yeah. Surgeon General told CBS News that if we could get a critical mass of Americans to wear face coverings in the next two to three weeks, we could really turn this around, crush the spike in cases that we've seen. Will you tell the American people to wear a face mask? Well, I'd say
5: listen to that and uh, they but the said, Surgeon General so they said did. on the
4: weekend that they were trying to do. Well that's relate, okay. That's you know, okay. I, and I don't mind science. if
5: people change their right. mind. I'm not holding it against Fauci or him or anybody else.
4: Wearing a mask is a public health issue. Why has it become such a political issue? It is a
5: political issue for a lot of people. It's not a political issue for me. I would wear it if I'm in in contact with people, if I'm close to people, and I have worn it before. You saw that. I think I was in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I was in numerous locations. I have had them on before.
4: You're thinking on on mass has evolved. You've learned more about it. You feel that.
5: Not evolved. No. I'm I'm okay from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think if I'm in a hospital, Mm -hmm. and if I see doctors, and I see patients, and I'm near patients, especially even from protecting a patient from me, I view it almost as important, maybe more important in a lot of ways. People don't think of it that way. They think protect the, you know, the president. I see, I really say, protect these incredible soldiers who have just been through massive operations so, that you don't right, even want to think right. about.
4: If it's about personal responsibility, will you tell Americans to wear a mask so that we can crush? I would the have no cases?
5: problem with that. But what I really do is I will say follow the guidelines because the guidelines say exactly that now what happens is governors can take and the governors can you know they can demand that because this is federalist the governors can demand that and some so, of the governors do
4: so you believe the responsibility rests with the governors on face masks well, yeah There's and not they also they also
5: may defense. go by guidelines and they can have their own guidelines but they go by the cdc guidelines and right now that's saying wear a mask and that's okay with me that's good okay. those guidelines are good i'm not stopping them from saying it. i do say this originally people were saying don't wear a mask People that we all respect were saying don't wear a mask because look, you know, it's got certain drawbacks and they say don't wear a mask. Now they're saying wear a mask, I'm okay. And it does evolve. You know, I mean, thought, the thought process evolves. So let's see what happens. But
4: you urge Americans to wear masks.
5: If it's necessary, I would urge him to wear a mask, and I would say follow the guidelines.
4: Okay. Um, let's talk about testing. Back in March, you said every American who wants a test will get a test. But one of the major labs in the U.S. announced today that the average wait time for a result is about seven days. So is the national testing strategy working?
5: Uh, working? We have 45 million tests as of, I think, today, approximately 45 million tests. No other country tests like us.
4: But seven days, a seven-day waiting period is a long sure, period of time. You, is that, is, that, is sure, that acceptable? But you
5: don't say the fact that we've tested 45 million people, and we have all types of tests. You have tests where you send it away, and you have tests where they can do it right there. We have at the White House and at other places a five-minute test. It takes five minutes. The, the best thing we can do is we're doing more and more of them is on-site testing. So you can wait a half an hour, or you can wait, in some cases, like in Abbott, you could wait five minutes for will the test. You, will result. you push
4: for more on-site testing? I like
5: it the best. I mean, I like it the best. It might not be as accurate, by the way, but I like it the mm-hmm. best.
4: I just want to interject because I think a lot of Americans want to hear that on-site testing will be fast-tracked by you. How, how would you do that?
5: Well, it is being fast-tracked. Many people, I mean, you're bringing up one example, but many people are saying we can't believe how fast it's working.
4: Mm-hmm. Are we doing too much testing?
5: We're doing test. I don't say too much because it can lead to a trend and you can find out where it's happening. So I don't say too much.
4: You reposted a tweet yesterday saying the CDC and health officials are lying. You understand this is confusing for the public. So no,
5: who when do, who I reposted a tweet, like I'm just giving. The yeah, I didn't make a comment. Like I Dr. did. Fauci. I reposted a tweet that a lot of people feel. But all I'm doing is making a comment. I'm just putting somebody's voice out there. There are many voices. Let's talk about
4: Dan Scavino because he posted a cartoon of Dr. Fauci. And the allegation is that your staff are spending a lot of time attacking one of the premier medical professionals in this country. No,
5: I like Dr. Fauci. To me, he's a really good guy and a nice guy, but he's made mistakes. On education,
4: the Los Angeles School District is the latest and one of the largest in the country to say they're not going back to school in the fall. Mistake. What do you tell parents and teachers who feel that it's unsafe to go back?
5: I would tell parents and teachers that you should uh, find yourself a new person, whoever's in charge of that decision, because it's a terrible decision. Because children and parents are dying from that trauma, too. They're dying because they can't do what they're doing. Mothers can't go to work because all of a sudden they have to stay home and watch their child and fathers. Uh, What's happening, you know, there's a tremendous strain on that whole side of the equation. So it's a balancing.
4: It's a balancing act. It is a saying.
5: balancing act, but that we have to open our schools.
1: President Trump, with CBS News correspondent Catherine Herridge. This is America changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In this battle against COVID-19, we face not only an immediate medical peril, but also the need to address shortcomings in our readiness for such an event that health officials and reporters have been warning us about through multiple administrations over decades. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is the author of Healing Politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic. He's also host of the podcast, America Dissected, is the former executive director of the Detroit Health Department and also formerly an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University. Good to have you with us. How are you?
6: It's great to join you. I'm doing um, as well as can be, given giving the, giving the context, and I really appreciate you having me.
1: We really appreciate your being here. As an epidemiologist, I've heard you describe this as a toaster fire, which I like because it's so much easier to imagine than, uh, and weirdly more of a pleasure to imagine than thinking about a bureaucracy. But what do you mean by that? Yeah,
6: that's right. So you know, when you think about it, um, every fire starts as a spark. And uh, we often pay attention to them when they get really big, but we do a lot of work to prevent them from getting big. We all have uh, fire alarms in our homes and we have fire stations in our communities. All of those are about preventing fires from getting big in the first place. And then you know, if 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 you need to, battling them uh, it, when they do get big. It points to a, a general level of disinvestment in basic public goods and public services that we've had in this country for a very long time um, that have led us to where we are.
1: I have a friend who was on one of the earliest of our broadcasts, Lori Garrett. And I've known Laurie since the late 80s. And during all that time as a health and science journalist, she's been warning that the country – uh, no matter whether it was a Republican or a Democratic administration, was completely underinvested and unprepared for something like this, and it seems that's the case only more so.
6: That's right. That's right. We, um, you know, we had we had done away with the pandemic response unit in the National Security Council. Uh, we had cut funding for the CDC. Funding for state and local health departments has dropped by forty-five percent over the past twenty years. All of those things have left us fundamentally unready uh, for what we knew was coming. You talk to any expert in the country. In fact, there's tape of Dr. Fauci talking about a forthcoming pandemic in 2017. Um, We knew it was possible. And we also knew that climate change was making it increasingly probable. And yet we disinvested from the things that we needed in the first place. And all of it speaks to a culture of cutting uh, public goods and public services when, you know, we we want to trim budgets, but we don't exactly know uh, or think about why folks put those line items in those budgets to begin with. And, um, you know, I, I, the other analogy I like to use for public health is like the castle wall. And you can imagine, you know, a wayward king uh, three generations after uh, the castle was built and the wall was built and asking, why do we need to spend so much money upkeeping the castle wall? Well, because the minute that you cut the castle wall, uh, you realize that there are uh, enemies from uh, from afar who are looking uh, for uh, those weaknesses in your defenses. And in this case, that's exactly what uh, these viruses can do. And um, when they make the jump into humans uh, and we don't have the science that we need to take them on and we don't have the public health infrastructure that we need to take them on, this is what happens. The castle wall gets breached and um, the, the, the castle gets taken over. And, and here we are. There's always
1: been a political element to health care. The major part of that, one that you've been involved in, is whether or not that we should have a national health care program. Medicare for all is expand the Affordable Care Act, uh, be all private or what. We've never seen politicizing health on the level that we have here, though, where it goes into actual recommendations into how how to take care of yourselves, such as wearing a mask.
6: That's right. And um, it really is just... It's it's so sad to see because you know wearing a a mask is is not a referendum on whether or not you believe in in liberty or freedom. In fact, I think the freedom to be able to breathe because you don't have a deadly virus in your lungs is is kind of the freedom that I'm I'm looking for. Um, And if I have to wear uh, a mask, even if it's hot and annoying, uh, to do that, then you know so be it. Um, it, It's frustrating because in a lot of ways this is driven by a politics that um, has been coming for some time. A politics that uh, wants to uh, oppose any any system or any source uh, of authority or of expertise outside of itself, and um, and we're seeing that you know to devastating consequences. Given the fact that uh, of all high income countries in the world, no country has suffered the number of deaths that we have, and no country is still dealing with uh, the 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 runaway spread that we're seeing here. Um, public health has always been political because, in the end, politics is about the choices that we make about scarce resources. And you know, in the end, health is a scarce resource, and healthcare certainly is a scarce resource. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is if uh, we are willing to make the investments uh, in the the short and long term that can improve well-being for all of us, or uh, we are more interested in allowing us a, a few people to make a lot of money uh, on a system that. Uh, that we have right now. And I will say that the discussion about how we provide health care is imminently related to the question of what we do to protect our public health in a system that says that healthcare is a commodity to be traded and profiteered off of. There is no real incentive to keeping people healthy because, of course, you only got paying customers when they get sick, and that's a question we all have to deal with over the long term as it reverberates through our healthcare system. You only disinvest in in, in public health, which is about keeping people healthy, uh, when in fact there's a real incentive to make money off of people when they get sick, and this happens across our healthcare system. I'm not saying that that's what's operating in. The short term right now, but I am saying that over the long term, it has created a healthcare system that was unready to prevent a massive pandemic or deal with it when it hit us. This pandemic has demonstrated the fundamental flaw in assuming that health insurance should come with employment. Because the minute you lose your employment, which a lot of people have lost, you lose your health insurance too. And the cruel and bitter irony of it is that it's happening in the middle of a public health crisis, a pandemic. A lot of people nowadays work jobs that don't come with health insurance benefits simply because we're trading jobs for gigs. Something I talk a lot about in my book, Healing Politics, that this trading of jobs for gigs has left people without the basic means of a dignified life that we used to be able to expect from a job. And so if we're going to allow that kind of decoupling, then it's on government to stand up and say, well, listen, um, we need to, to be able to provide people something that is so fundamental, to their lives and livelihoods as healthcare, care uh, without them having necessarily to have a certain level of, uh, of employment.
1: As a final question, let me ask something that I think probably goes to the heart of your book, Healing Politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic, which is not so much something that we talk about a lot about what specific steps do we need to do? And I think you've hinted at some of the things that you favor. But in terms of the way we look at at healthcare, our attitudes about it, our attitudes about mental health care, all of that, where do we need to change there? Because that's kind of underlying the will to act on all
6: of this. We need to decide that in our country, everybody's health matters. And that as this pandemic is showing us, we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable among us. We are as susceptible as the most susceptible among us. We have to be focusing not just on ourselves, but on our collective whole. And it forces us to rethink the way that we provide these basic public goods and services. No longer can we allow corporations to exclude the poorest among us and people of color disproportionately and people in rural communities disproportionately. It's a choice that we as a collective have to make. And it frankly starts uh, with the people who are in power deciding to make it.
1: Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is the author of Healing Politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic, the host of the podcast America Dissected, former executive director of the Detroit Health Department, and formerly assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for spending the time with us.
6: Gil, it was my privilege. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In the 1918 flu epidemic... The U.S. military was hit hard, and no one wants that to happen again. CBS News correspondent Mark Strassman is at the center of the effort.
0: This is Paris Island, where they make Marines. It's boot camp hell for any recruit from east of the Mississippi. I'm standing in an area known as Leatherneck Square, and all around me, recruits are going through a confidence course. Here is what they're up against. The course itself is challenging. It's summer in South Carolina, and now their breathing is even harder because they all have to wear masks. It's one more way the Marines are trying to keep an invisible threat outside the wire at Paris Island. They're Marines in training already facing their first battle, COVID. It's why they're quarantined here at the Citadel for two weeks before heading to Paris Island. COVID-19 is brand new and we don't know much about it. But the Marines, first to fight, believe a COVID counterattack starts with cutting-edge research. Good, let's get on camera then. Immunologist Andrew Letizia is also a Navy commander. He's leading a Navy-Marine deep dive into why young people like this group fight off COVID better than most. For the military, the virus threat can lurk anywhere. So you'll have uh, individuals that are training together. They are eating together. They are in barracks and sleeping together as well. Certainly respiratory viruses, including COVID-19 can spread like wildfire in that that situation. It did aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt back in March. 1,200 sailors aboard the Naval aircraft carrier tested positive while at sea in the Pacific. One sailor died. The COVID threat was on the radar of every military branch. No one saw this coming. Colonel Rico Player commands the COVID Task Force at Paris Island. This study, I think, is critical because there's so many unknowns. How much of your time now is spent trying to keep your folks healthy? 80%, 90%, depending. Uh, It affects all of us because we can't see it. You know, It's everywhere but nowhere. At the Citadel, Letizia's volunteers give saliva samples, nasal swabs, and blood draws. Anyone testing COVID positive will be tracked and retested at least six times over eight weeks. Researchers here also want to learn more about how the virus spreads and how long someone's immune system will keep up the fight. Trying to figure out who makes antibodies. Does everybody make antibodies? How robust is that antibody response in order to identify the virus and effectively neutralize it in the future if you were to be re-exposed. We can then apply that knowledge of our immunology towards developing the next frontier of medicines as well as vaccines. And compare their findings with the immunologies of people more vulnerable to the virus. For the Marines, beating the virus would help protect their operational readiness. But this research could also reach another battlefield. That's the nationwide fight against the virus. I think some of the questions that we're really attempting to answer will help in the reopening of america this group needs to stay healthy ask any marine who went through basic training at paris island they have enough to worry about with the drill instructor without having to worry about covid it's fair to say when they arrive at paris island they are clean and ready to train the drill instructors will take care of the rest of that
1: this has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all.
6: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
4: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering.